With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back, everyone. This is the Bless You Boys podcast. I'm your host, Brandon Day. With me tonight is Ashley McLennan. Ashley, how we doing? We are doing pretty good. It's the new year. I have not fallen off the cart of all of my resolutions, so that's a start. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yep, here we are. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to believe, but yeah, we're really only only about a month from Pitchers and Catchers recording now, so we've made it after a, after a long winter slumber where we took, you know, about two months off here. Um... But fortunately, the Tigers have indulged us by not really doing a whole lot of anything. <laughs> so, we didn't, yeah, there wasn't a whole lot to catch up on. Um, but it does feel like, I mean, if we're looking through Twitter over the last couple hours, and we're recording here on Monday night, Martin Luther King Day, finally things are starting to happen, it seems like. Like, this has to happen at some point. Like, we haven't had any of the big free agents sign yet. We've still got Trevor Bauer out there. we got George Springer, JT Real Muto. Marcelo Zuna, like all these dudes are still still waiting for a contract, and here we are, like past the middle of January. Um, but it does feel like it's starting to starting to break loose. I think it seems like the hot stove is warming up, and I think it really did kick off with DJ LeMahieu signing back with the with the Yankees. He was one of those major pieces that people were really waiting for, and for him to sign what I think is an, a slightly too too big too long deal for for a guy his age. Um, that that's the Yankees, um, I think really did kind of kickstart things. So yeah, we're waiting for, you know, guys like Springer. I think Real Muto is going to stay play, stay in place with the Phillies. I think they're, they're really gunning for him and like his teammates are gunning for him. Like I've never seen before. I've never seen a team rally so hard to have a player stay. Yeah. And they just really started going all in like two years ago and haven't gotten anywhere yet. And they hired Dave Dombrowski to take over as GM this off season. So that was pretty much a clear signal to anybody that they weren't, um, they weren't going to sell and start rebuilding their farm system. So yeah, I mean, it makes sense that JT real Muto has got to be the guy for them. You would think. And then he's the most obvious choice. I mean, there's not a lot of guys left on the market when you've got like, you know, Alex Avila and yeah. J yeah. Jason Castro again. And yeah, Drew Butera's signed, Kurt Suzuki is signed, so I mean, yeah. there's not a lot of options left out there. Yeah, I think, like, yeah, maybe Wilson Ramos is out there. It's the same three guys, like, every year on one-year deals. Like, they're just, you know, somebody's got to get in there and get one of them. Well, I guess Contreras is still waiting for a potential move, eh? Like, that one's been kind of whispered about, so that would be an interesting thing to watch for too. Yeah. The Cubs haven't really like totally tore everything down, but after you trade you Darvish, it's, you know, it kind of feels like they're heading in that direction, but they also traded Victor Caratini who theoretically would, well, would be the guy. Although obviously he's you Darvish's he's, personal catcher, but yeah, exactly. Like he's got to go the way of Darvish. Like there's not really any way around that. 
Yeah. Um, unless they wanted to be real pricks. About it. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's got to be built into his, his contract somehow is that like where, where you goes, so goes Victor. Um, so I, I think it would be a fascinating contract to read if that's really in there. That would be hilarious if there were more like, yeah, this is my this is my best friend contracts where it was like, <laughs> you can only take the two guys or forget it. Ari Dickey had that situation, didn't he? He had a catcher who was just like his guy, whose name, of course, is escaping me right now. Yeah, um, that's but... true. I mean, you know, and Clayton Kershaw for a long time had had you know one catcher he wanted you know he wanted AJ Ellis I think only for a certain amount of time so it does come up that way yeah it was Josh Tolley um, who was R A Dickies and that makes sense too because for a knuckleballer you got to have a guy who can actually catch um, yeah and probably the the other guy <laughs> yeah the the other guy in the team didn't want to catch R A Dickey anyway he was fine with it. Yeah. So yeah, just today, like we've seen, like Tyler Chatwood um, signed with the Blue Jays. Um, Tyler Chatwood is everybody's favorite. Like, what? But the stuff is so good, guy, who never has a good season, but is always like signing these somewhat exorbitant contracts just because the raw metrics on his stuff are so good. He's a, uh, I don't know, not a casualty. I guess a beneficiary of the pitch data era, but uh, no team has been really the big beneficiary of signing him. And then, who else signed today? Da, 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 da. There was somebody else. Uh, there's been a couple. I've been getting pings all day from the, the Hug Watch channel. Yeah. Um, Ben's been working hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. Um, uh, what else do we got? Yeah, Chatwood was one. Uh, Alex Colome switched agents. That was one. Uh, oh, John Lester. That's the one. John Lester yeah. signed with the Washington Nationals the on a one-year Yeah, so I guess they're probably not bringing Anibal back. Um, he had a pitching, um, a pitching showcase, uh, just today, I think, um, which is kind of interesting. And the, the Tigers were there and I'm sure people are already writing their ragey comments at me for even suggesting, <laughs> um, the Tigers and Anibal Sanchez in the same sentence, but please let us remember he was on a world series winning team and actually improved when he left. Yeah. Tigers, miraculously. Um, that said, he's also older now, to be polite. And, um, <laughs> I, th- I think would be a very risky pickup for them, even on a reclamation project. So yeah. I kind of want to see if the Rays are sniffing, though, because that would be an interesting one-year contract for them. Yeah, and he's not really the type. He's not really like a Rays-type pitcher in some ways, but I, I don't know. I could I could kind of see that. And, I mean, and it's just a matter of, I, I feel like whenever we're writing about Tiger's free agent targets, it's like you have the, you know, you have the dream list, and then you have the, like, okay, maybe they'll they'll get one of these guys, and then there's the, okay, here's all the bargain basement guys, and this is kind of what we what we have to, to pick through. So, um, by the time people are listening to this podcast, I'll probably have something up on Matt Shoemaker, who's another one who is kind of perennially injured. Um, occasionally when he's, um, when he's, when he's healthy, he's usually still pretty effective. Um, kind of has some like seam shifty type traits and throws a ton of splitters, which the Tigers have kind of seemed to be leaning toward in recent years. So he's another one who like maybe wouldn't be the guy that we'd really love, but the Tigers are, you know, we do have like so many, we have many pitchers. We just don't have enough like innings probably out of them. So if they sign a guy like Garrett Richards, who is the one I would like, or Matt Shoemaker, and they end up being hurt and only making 10 starts, I mean, it's fine because it just opens up, you know, the spot for Casey Mize, Tarek Skubal, Matt Manning, you know, whoever else to uh, to come up and get a shot. So it's just kind of like a matter of having enough 
kind of warm bodies around who could be, you know, decent at least, I suppose. So Move somebody's arm balls. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You have somebody else to slug. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Next, next uh, man up. Mm-hmm. But what was it like two years ago? They had the potential for about seven starting pitchers. And by the end of the season, I think they had three. Yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> well, and even, even last spring, I think I wrote that a whole thing about like, you know, you know, the Tigers do have a ton of pitching depth this year, you know, which might help them out. You know, we don't have anybody great, but you know, we had, you know, you still had Zimmerman sitting around, of course, and they had signed Devon Nova, and then you had Fulmer Boyd, you had Turnbull, and you had Mize and Scoobull possibly coming up. You had Tyler Alexander and Daniel Norris, and we still have most of those guys. Um, we've swapped out Ivan Nova for, what's his face, Jose Arana. Um So he's in there now. So, I mean, they've got a lot of pitching, but yeah, just with the... Um, with the fact that the young pitchers especially are going to really have strict innings limits this year. And teams are talking about maybe using six man rotations part of the time because guys didn't get enough work last year and they're scared. They're going to hurt all the pitchers this year. Kind of makes sense to, to pick up some backup. I just wish, yeah, that the Tigers would go for a little bit bigger game than uh, Matt Shoemaker or Anibal Sanchez or something like that. But we know what we're dealing with here. <laughs> Yeah, I think the big concern is going from a season where your minor league guys barely played, except for the alternate sites, where you had a 60-game season where nobody really got a chance to, like, warm up or stretch out. Yeah. Um, And now, you know, you got the commissioner's office saying they want to aim for 162 games. They want to aim for spring training to start, you know, mid-Feb as it normally does. Um, And part of me thinks they might actually pull off the the timing because they were able to pull off that 60-game season with... I mean, obviously, quite a lot of disaster at the beginning. I don't know how they actually managed to get through the whole thing. Yeah. Um, but I think they've learned some lessons, maybe. Uh, the the fact, of course, that spring training takes place in, in Florida and Arizona, which are two of the, I think, two of the highest caseload um, states right now, are not helpful. Yep, but... this is true. But, again, like, you can kind of, especially if they keep the minor leaguers back and don't have camp for them until... April, you can probably kind of isolate the group and, you know, by, and I mean, I think we all know how this is going to go too. like vaccine rollout has been kind of garbage so far, but yeah. it's going to get ramped up r- pretty fast here, I'm assuming. And somehow, you know, wealthy sports teams all seem to manage to get um, super high end medical care that the average folks can't get. So there's probably a pretty good chance that most of those most of those guys will be vaccinated by then, and we'll we'll see. But yeah, one way or the other, we don't know for sure. But they're they're definitely telling them to to plan for a normal major league season. Um, the attendance might be the the thing that's still kind of up in the well, air as far as that goes. But we'll see. I think yeah, spring training attendance I still think is a terrible idea, even though I think that they're aiming to be able to sell pods of tickets. Yeah. Um, I think where it becomes. I feel like the way we're seeing, it depends state by state too, right? Obviously local legislation will restrict things a lot more. Like I can see things being okay in maybe like, I, and this is just me pulling a state out because I don't know what the caseload numbers are in like the Midwest, but like maybe it's easier to have a crowd in Cincinnati than it is somewhere like Los Angeles where things are so bad that they're having to like ease restrictions on like air pollution so that they can cremate more people yeah yeah it's very different situation state to state and i think i think the lowest worry for anybody should be getting people into baseball games yeah 
obviously you also, if you're going to do it, you want to be able to do it safely. And I think that that's what they're trying to assess. They're like, how do we sell these pods of seats? How do we, you know, enforce mask mandates? They've said stuff like that they're not going to do or to require showing a negative test. They're not going to require people to show proof of vaccine. Um, so, I mean, which I guess is like that's a legal thing. You don't want to step yeah. feed into to like be asking people about their medical history. Right. Um, but it does put it puts things at risk, right? Like, it, so, it does. I mean, a lot of questions. yeah, I mean, there really are. I mean, I, I, I could see them being able to manage even under like current conditions, like managing, you know, like quarter crowd size. Um, I mean, yeah, like a 20% capacity. I think you could do it. Yeah. 20 to 30, maybe at least. And maybe they can do more depending yeah, again, just depending on how, you know, how fast the, the population is getting vaccinated. But, you know, again, you are outside, you know, I mean, there's obviously plenty of risk of transmission kind of n- no matter what, but, when you're at an outdoor event, like it's, you know, it's less than when you're in an enclosed space with, with people for a long amount of time. So I don't know. I'm sure they're, they're trying to factor all these things in. Um, and I'm glad I'm not in, in charge of having to, uh, to do that because you have to imagine like on one hand, the pressure from the owners has got to just be insane because, you know, apart from worrying about their PR, they want, you know, they want their money and that's, you know, that's all that they want. And meanwhile, like, yeah, the league has got to kind of try to manage this so that it's not like a completely irresponsible shit show to put it bluntly. And, um, yeah, enjoy. Good luck with all that. Let's my, ass- my personal favorite as a, as a fellow from a, a tiger, but also a Rays fan is that people are already making attendance jokes because it's like the Rays will be allowing 7,000 people to attend. <laughs> We're like, Oh, so back to normal then. <laughs> and I'm like, yep. Yep. It's hilarious. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yep, full capacity for the race. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, well, that's pretty much full capacity for the Tigers these days. So, uh, yeah, no one around in these parts can talk either, I'm afraid. I think the thing that we don't really talk about when it comes to fan attendance, though, is, like, the impact it actually does have on the players. Yeah. Because I think that that was the feedback that we were seeing from everybody playing those games is how incredibly strange it was for the piped in crowd noise or to not see fans in the stadium and to not get that reinforcement during gameplay. Like, I don't think anybody realized quite a, how psychologically it affected the players in the, in the field to not have fans around, which I think is, is kind of a fascinating case study. Yeah. I mean, we kind of speculated that it would be you know, that it was going to be pretty weird. And, uh, you know, a lot of guys made their debut, you know, like this, this big moment where you'd usually have your family there and, you know, the adrenaline would be racing and instead, you know, it just, it kind of felt like they were just playing like a scrimmage game, you know, some of the time. Seemed like it took until, you know, September when all of a sudden there's the playoffs and stuff starting to feel like it's on the line, you know, before like the real intensity was able to kick in like normal. So, and even then, I mean, it was still just weird. It was a weird watch. Um, You know, I, I never... You I mean you appreciate what what the crowd noise would be like, and you know they tried to like pipe in some kind of fake noise and stuff, but it was just so odd. Um, you know the sounds in the stadium just aren't the same. The sound off the bat in some stadiums sounded like gunshots going off, um, which was kind of in- impressive in some ways. But then other like other sounds would be more muted in different parks. It was just weird to like listen to the game in in an, in an empty ballpark. And and here the differences was strange too. Yeah, it was the whole thing was weird. It was just a bizarre season. <clears throat> but it's a whole 
a whole new chapter. Whatever happens as far as uh, old Corona goes, it's a new chapter for the Tigers because we have we've and we haven't had a chance to talk about this um, between you and I since the the last um, the last time we were on the podcast. I had Mark on a couple times and we talked about some of these things, but the Tigers have a new head honcho in AJ Hinch, um, a whole new coaching staff. <clears throat> it's pretty exciting. Um, it, it's a little bit sad to say that this might be the most exciting thing that has happened over the past <laughs> like four seasons, other than maybe when Tyler Alexander went nuts and struck out nine batters in a row for, and we were all like, "Oh, what? What's happening? Something's happening." What is going on here? Nope. Yeah, I got to admit, I was one of those people that was a little bit like eh on the hinge hiring on the offset, um, only because I feel like the the kind of the taint of the Astro scandal hasn't worn off entirely. Uh, high five to the one person listening to this that giggled when I said taint. Um, <laughs> congrats. Um, but I, yeah, I think that part of me was just like, oh, I don't, I don't know. But then, you know, the logical baseball part of my brain was like, this guy's really good and he, he managed a World Series team and he's an incredible asset to be able to take and like utilize and kind of the exact guy you want to kind of bring in the end of the Guardy era, which I think was just very much a holdover. Yeah. Guardy's Guardy's the guy you want to kind of like steer the ship while the young guys are getting ready. But Hinch is exactly the kind of guy you want to have when that ship is ready to like sail. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm excited. I'm cautiously optimistic. I think it's been long enough and like the short enough season of of last year and all the other stuff that's happened since that I don't think anybody's going to be going, ah, you're a cheater and like banging trash cans at him. So yeah, I mean, Chris Tedder's by far my more exciting pickup. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, some of that is probably going to happen and maybe before the season starts, I'll write another, I'll write a thing about the, the Astro scandal and kind of, you know, there's, there were a lot of really good articles written about, you know, actually how effective the cheating scandal appeared to be, which ultimately wasn't that much because they got the signals wrong so often that it was, you know, it was screwing them up. So it's kind of interesting to see how that played out. But I think what, you know, what kind of sells me is just the fact that baseball doesn't seem to have any kind of problem with A.J. Hinch. Like the the real contentiousness seems to be between, you know, like Joe Kelly versus like Carlos Correa. You know, like it seems like the, the anger out there is like player to player, um, whereas, yeah. you know, you talk to managers and GMs and they're all, they all still rave about AJ Hinch and what a great guy he is and how they like him, you know, and how smart he is and blah, blah, blah. And there's just that disconnect where, yeah, you know, for a certain segment of the fan base, it's like, you're a cheater and you'll always be a cheater. And, you know, but the game itself doesn't seem to care. It's weird. I think the person coming away from this with the big C (coughs) letter is going to be Jeff Lunau. I don't think, that at the end of the day, Alex Cora or AJ Hinch or those guys who were part of that on the level that they just didn't stop it are going to have quite the pall over them that Jeff Lunau does. I don't think he's ever going to work in baseball again, to be quite frank. No, I believe um, he bought a he bought a soccer team in Mexico, I believe, and that well, that is what he has gone off to do now. Yeah. All yeah. the best to him. Um, because I don't want him anywhere near me. <laughs> no, I don't. It, because it went. I mean, there was so much that went on just in the well, culture. Part of yeah. like trying to bury the Stephanie Epstein story about what happened in the locker room with the female reporter, and like, there's just you know yeah. so much that he had his fingers in that was really like ugly. Yeah, um, and it just seemed to permeate like the entire you know front office and everything. Like you know, there was just yeah. 
the whole the whole attitude of that organization just seemed to be seemed to be bad um, in the in the management levels. So, yeah, good riddance, really. But uh, yeah, so you know, I mean, AJ Hinch is already getting you know name checked when when the Tigers sign people. Um, he gives the Tigers, and I, I guess this, this is the whole thing. Like we all hope that AJ Hinch does a great job as a coach and can raise up the young players. And you know, obviously the Tigers have a big catching problem and, and nothing there. And AJ Hinch is a great catching coach, so you would hope that maybe he can get something out of Rogers. You know, maybe help them with with developing Dylan Dingler and that sort of thing. But he also just sort of gives you that name recognition, like to go play for AJ Hinch. For pitchers to go work with Chris Fetter, who you know was a pretty highly sought after you know pitching coach who didn't re- seem to really want to leave U of M, and we weren't really sure that we could get him, and then all of a sudden you know just just bam overnight it was like oh Chris Fetter's coming here, and yeah I mean I couldn't really be more excited about anything th- this off season unless the Tigers just stagger us with a with a trade or something um, then yeah t- then to get. Chris Fetter and AJ Hinch in there and to, to finally feel like you've got like cutting edge coaches who are, you know, young and hungry and have something to prove and, um, you know, are, are new ideas and like want to try exciting different things. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, I'm super enthused about that. Yep. Yep. And I think they did the right thing in, you know, in bringing up, um, Juan Nieves, who was the AAA pitching coach for the Tigers for a couple years, um, did, did really nice work. Like, kind of tuning a couple guys right before they got to the major leagues, like Spencer Turnbull, Tyler Alexander, like both of those guys just, just seemed to get just marginally better in a lot of small things when they worked with him. Um, and, you know, were kind of noticeably better when they actually did get to the major leagues than they, than they'd been kind of even just like a year earlier in the, in the minors. So, and Juan Nieves has been a major league pitching coach. He was a pitching coach with the Marlins. So he's got that major league experience that kind of helps balance the fact that Fetter has, you know, worked in the major leagues, but has never coached at the major league level. Um, so that seemed like a smart move. Um, everybody seems to love George Lombard and think, you know, he's like great management material. Um, so he's in as bench coach. We've got a new hitting coach. Um, the Tigers revamped their player development system um, all la- all last year, and we didn't really get to see any of the the results of them hiring Kenny Graham and Dan Hubbs and Georgia Giblin to do the sports science department. Um, we didn't really get to see any of that because they didn't get to work with the players much this year. But um, you know, but again, because they didn't, it's almost like we just got them, and so there's this whole new influx of energy and you know young innovative minds working with the players this year and so yeah i mean we've got to hope that this can finally um get the development machine cranking here because it's really been been pretty grim i mean it was nice to see casey mize and um tarek scoobal and nice to see parades and you know the fact that willie castro got pretty hot for a little while was was encouraging but but by and large see that like because they did the same thing with jose de leon right like they saw a guy that had a lot of like interest i mean obviously jose de leon wasn't as highly ranked as mize was when when the tigers picked him up but it's knowing and seeing if you think there's going to be a decline before the decline actually happens and of course right now we've seen one very tiny part of a season with casey mize where he struggled um I don't think that's enough to say that Casey Mize isn't going to make it. The the best time to trade him might have been last spring then, you know, before anybody had even seen him at the major league level, you know, when he, when he was the number one prospect in baseball. But 
Yeah, I'm not sure. Well, like, like I, he'll become the next Justin Verlander. So I mean, like, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not. Yeah, and of course, it's not a question of like wanting to get rid of Casey Mize. It's just a question of. Like you know, like the Rays do, getting the most value you know out of out of the guys that you have, one way or the other, and knowing well, and knowing which guys aren't going to work out before anyone else does, and that's the thing Stewart. we keep harping on, like with like the Kristen Stewart situation. Yeah. Like two years ago, Kristen Stewart was a decent trade chip. The best teams would recognize that. Ah, eh, we don't really. Let's see if we can ship him out for something now, you know, rather than just trying these guys at the major league level over and over again, you know, and, and letting them fail. Um, Dawal Lugo was another one. And I think that's such a huge problem for the Tigers that I don't think they know how they want to rebuild because they seem to just be hoarding their prospects. And yeah, they've got some good prospects, but there comes a point when you're on year what are we now almost year five of this rebuild yeah and you have to look at it and say okay like when do we move them to the majors or when do we assess that they're not going to fit what we're trying to do with our team and trade them for like a guy who's borderline triple a to mlb level and see if we can get guys that are ready to compete now pick up a few free agents and actually like make a go of it and I think that the problem is, is they seem to be stuck in this position where they really want to develop their entire future roster of, of <laughs> winners. Yeah. But that's not how you build a winning team. You don't do it all from within. You you have to pick pieces up from other places and trade and pick up via free agency. It's like a, it's a three bucket system. Yeah. And the Tigers are very stuck in one bucket. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and the more cynical interpretation of that, which I, I ascribe to a lot of the time, is that the Tigers just don't want to put themselves in a position where there are any expectations. Like, they don't, you know, once you start trying, you know, then you can be graded on whether or not you're failing. But when you just kind of stay in this, well, you know, we're still just kind of, you know, building up the farm system and starting to piece things together, you know, you keep expectations away from it. And yeah, I mean, all right, it's we're going we're going into year four of the rebuild. Um, but that's still a long time to be the worst team in baseball. Like it's not like it's not like there's been any building yet. Um, this is still you know ground floor stuff. Um, even though the farm system is obviously much better. So yeah, we've got a long way to go. And I don't know. I've said this before too. It just it just scares me to death when a team won't trade their prospects and and, and doesn't just generally make trades very aggressively because it tells me they just don't think that they can out evaluate other teams um even in regards to their own players you know they don't think they know their guys and what they're worth better than other teams that are out there and yeah i mean or they overvalue them and they don't genuinely i think actually assess or look at the trades they're being offered i think that maybe they look at it and they're like okay like I'll trade you Casey Mize but you have to give me 3 of your best top prospects and other teams are like yeah yeah. That's not going to happen, but thank you. Right. And, like, I think that there's maybe a habit on their end of highly overestimating the value of some of the guys on their team or that are in their minor league system. And I, I think that they would benefit from, like, a real analytics type to, to have a look at those offers and be like, hey, uh, this is actually not so bad. Maybe you should take a look at this. Yeah, and I, you know, and I can almost feel myself thinking that AJ Hinch might end up having more of a hand in that. You know, Jim Leland had a little bit more of a hand in things just because of who he was and because of the, like the time 
you know, the timing of, of Jim Leland coming here and where the system was and the fact that, okay, it was time to, it was time to go. They were, they were supposed to be getting better. And so Jim Leland had, you know, quite a bit of say in his roster. And of course he was a veteran and they brought him here to win. Um, the, you know, and the same, the same is true of AJ Hinch, you know, AJ Hinch is not Jim Leland, but, um, but, you know, has that experience and is the type of guy who I think a lot of people expect to ultimately become a GM someday, if that's what he wants to do. Um, so you hope that, yeah, maybe he has a little bit of input there, but yeah, I mean, to go right back to, um, you know, 2017, when they tore things down, they kept Michael Fulmer and, you know, they kept Matt Boyd and they kept Daniel Norris. And at the time that led me to think that, okay, they're not going to take forever here because, you know, Uh if, if they were, why wouldn't they deal those guys then? You know, and obviously there's a lot of speculation about what they were offered and, you know, whether or not it was good enough. Obviously, in retrospect, they should have traded all three of them then for whatever the best offer was and, and you know, and just started gone 100% into, okay, we're rebuilding this thing and tearing it all the way down. They didn't do that. And now we've got these three guys who Daniel Norris is going to be a free agent after this year. Fulmer and Boyd are coming up the year after. And right now, none of them is worth much of anything. Like, Norris is probably worth a, a decent chunk because he's a good reliever. He's a lefty. He can go multiple innings. But, yeah, Boyd, I, Boyd and Fulmer are really, you know, absolutely worthless right now. To beat, beat the dead trade horse, I really want Norris to go to the race. <laughs> I think he would be such a good fit for their model. Yeah, I mean, he's a total Rays guy. You know, he's the, he's yeah. the high spin, you know, high spin efficiency guy with the nasty breaking ball and, you know, kind of kind of will pitch in any situation. You're <clears> not going to get much for him because of the limited, you know, term of his, his contract. But I think that you could still... He, the Tigers aren't going to do anything with him, so what's the point? Like, see if you can get something interesting. Yeah, I mean, if it was me, I'd be thinking about extending Daniel Norris um, up here, but mm-hmm. the, but they don't show any signs of doing that. Daniel Norris agreed, you know, in, to an ARB deal. That's all locked in, and so he's going to get traded in July, assuming he's healthy. And, you know, if he pitches like he did last year, we'll probably have the same value as, like, Shane Green had a couple years ago. So maybe we'll get, a you know, a nice but not special pitching prospect him or something like that which would be fine but yeah it's just uh you know you think of like the last three years while all three of those guys have sort of you know struggled and gone up and down and dealt with injuries and all this kind of stuff and um yeah now it's just at the point where we're kind of just going to be giving them away for whatever we can get um which is a drag so it would have been nice to move void too did not work out too bad yeah so now what we're left is to um you know to hope that chris fetter has some has some tricks up his sleeves for those guys and um you know can can kind of maximize whatever value they have left and uh yeah and and get us some prospects back or or a player but yeah it's um it's it's not been ideal at at any point along the rebuild um you know when we have to keep pointing back to the fact that they made one good trade in 2017 (laughs) Like, it wasn't a complete disaster because they got, you know, James Candelario and, you know, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not ideal. So, but I think we all know that we're hoping, uh, we're hoping that a whole bunch of players who we didn't get to see this year in the farm system, guys like Parker Meadows or Bryant Packard, like some of these guys, you know, took a step forward in their training and and everything. And, you know, we'll see it this year, but yeah, I mean, the Tigers need some of those, those mid tier prospects to, to break and and start doing better. Cody Clemens, somebody, somebody needs to make a move. (laughs) Help this thing out. Yeah. I'm still mystified by the whole Jake Rogers thing. I really just wish I understood what his, his failures were. And maybe there aren't, I don't know. 
like what's keeping him or kept him from being used at all and what keeps him from being discussed in any capacity as the tiger's future everyday catcher like clearly they've just let go of that yeah i mean the only person who i've seen you know really reference that is aj hinch and it sounds like aj hints you know wants wants him to get a chance so you know, maybe things will change this year, but it's just bizarre when you have a, you know, Grayson Griner play for two years, putting up like a 30 or a 40 WRC plus, you know, not doing anything particularly good behind the plate. Like he's fine. He's a fine defensive catcher. If he could hit, I'd be perfectly happy, happy with him as a backup. But, um, but yeah, Jake Rogers changed his swing last off season, went to, you know, one of the, the best independent hitting coaches that's out there, um, Doug Lotta, who's, you know, kind of turned around the careers of quite a few people, <clears throat> you know, and tried to do the right thing, tried to do what the Tigers seem to want him to do, which is to make more contact, hit more line drives, not swing for the fences. Um, and then, yeah, it was like he just kind of got shunted aside. And so you have to, I mean, you have to assume from that that it wasn't going particularly well. Um, there isn't any other reason. Like, I've seen a couple articles that speculated that the Tigers were gaming as service time or some nonsense, but, you know, that didn't have anything to do with it because Jake Rogers is already, I think, 26. You know, it's like, yeah, you're it's not, not a service time issue. That. I look at, I, this year has been especially interesting to think of gaming service time because I look at the Cubs with Chris Bryant and they, like, got sued over gaming his service time. And that suit was really over this coming year. Yep. And now they're talking about trading him. Like he's he's not the the former Chris Bryant. And I think about that every time I hear stories about gaming service time now. Because I'm like, why bother? Like why not get that major league time out of a young player while you still can? And the back end of a player's contract is almost never where you want them anyway. So Yeah. I mean, and there's obviously exceptions to that. There's, you know, when you've got a guy and he's only contracted till 28 and he becomes Miguel Cabrera, obviously it's a different story, but. Right. Yeah. It just hasn't, you know, it hasn't really gone that well for Chris Bryant the past couple of years. Like still, a, still a good player, but um, yeah, hasn't, you know, hasn't really kind of maintained that early production and, and turned out to be a, a great player. But yeah, it is interesting to think that this is the year that they, that they kind of stole from him by slow playing him for a month or whatever it was. Um and yeah, who knows if if they had him that month back then, maybe that season would have gone differently. You really you really don't know. But um, yeah, that that whole gaming the service time thing continue, continues to sort of linger over the whole league. And you know, with the next CBA going to be negotiated next year, there's a, there's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about how to you know get the younger pay, players paid more so that the veterans will get, you know, paid in free agency and teams won't just like immediately throw all the veterans out and, and go cheap every year with their, their youngest guys. And yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, it's all of a parcel and I'm sure we'll, that'll, that'll be a, a topic that comes up a lot this year as the, uh, the no doubt contentious relations between uh, league and players union um, continue to unfold. So yeah. Well, well, I would love it if they could just decide uh, on the universal DH before they really start, you know, fighting each other to the death for things. Yeah, they still, yeah, you know, it keeps, it's it's like the, well, it's kind of like the 162 game season. Like, they keep coming out with these fairly declarative statements. Like, we're telling all the teams to be ready. We're going to have a full schedule, you know, pending, you know, pending maybe some changes. And it was, you know, and then it was like, we're not going to have the universal DH. And now it's back to, well, maybe we will have the universal DH, but, you know, we want something for it and we're going to negotiate about it. Uh, it's just so bizarre to, 
I suppose football probably is like this every year where there's like these rule changes that happen beforehand, but to have the actual structure of, you know, of, of the game still kind of under debate, you know, with, with like a month until pitchers and catchers report is just, just odd to me. This feels like uh, they keep pushing the decision making off later and later every year, just in the same way that uh-huh. free agency kind of keeps getting pushed, you know, further and further back. Um, free agency this year, I mean, it made sense that it would take a while because teams wanted to, you know, get some confidence that, that there'd be a regular season and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we, we understand why this one is taking so long in particular, but, um, but yeah, to see like almost none of the top prospects, you know, signed yet. And even, you know, not even like, you know, huge rumors going, going around about a lot of them. And meanwhile, the Padres are out, out here just, you know, punching everyone in the face and picking up every good player possible. It's amazing. <laughs> They're signing fucking everybody, and they're still like, you know, we might still be interested in Trevor Bauer. We might still be interested in Sonny Gray. Uh, I don't know. Like, who else you got? You want to trade for somebody? Can I have Justin Verlander when he comes back from Tommy John? We'll take him, too. Like, why not? Yep. Like, everybody to the Padres. I know. Those bastards better not do that. You just leave leave your filthy paws off Justin Verlander right now. I still tr- I still want want that final outcome where it's he comes back from Tommy John, he decides to play one or two more seasons, and he does it in Detroit. That's all I want. Yep. <sighs> Give me the romantic conclusion to his career. Yeah, if I'm gonna go full romantic, it's Justin Verlander at age you know 41 on the field after the Tigers win a World Series. Take a tip in the cap, like just walking back to the dugout. Oh God, I want to cry. Yep. Yep. The celebration, Kate Upton on the field, Everybody their, their cute the little field. daughter on his shoulders, like it's all come full circle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> We're just breaking the hearts tears. out there. The tears I would have, like, I still cry watching, like, clips from 2006. So, yeah. Uh, I, I feel like I could get a good tearjerker going just imagining this outcome. Yep. Yep. Oh, man. Yeah, that does, that does sound pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that tells you how bad the injuries were this year. Justin Verlander, like, had an arm injury after uh-huh. f- 15 years, basically. <laughs> and only, like, ridiculous. games into the season, too, so it was pretty rough. Yeah. And yeah. that goes to show you how bad it is if they don't have the right opportunity to, like, prepare. Yep. I mean, you just never know. Like, for him, it may have just been coming all this time, and whatever super freak UCL he has in that elbow just, just finally, finally was like, no, nah, I need a little work done. <laughs> but... Can't throw this hard for this long forever, but um, but yeah, yeah, that uh, that dream is is definitely in my mind as well. But for now, the dream is to be a Padres fan, and they went out again today and traded for Joe Musgrove to add another another like decent arm to that rotation, um, which for everyone's fantasy baseball team purposes out there immediately made everyone think that Denelson Lamette must be injured because they already had enough pitching. Um, I don't know if that's true, but yeah, I mean. You look at the guys they even have on the shelf. You know they've they got Mike Clevenger who isn't going to yep. pitch this year. They've got they've got people I, back. I just envision the Padres being like pitcher Pokemon catchers. Like <laughs> they're, they're gotta catch them all. Yep, yep. Need a little bit of everybody to fill in all those roles. Yep, yep. They're just just picking up pitchers left and right. And meanwhile, um, Corey Kluber uh, went and signed with the Yankees on a one year deal. So that happened the other day. So he's over there now and coming that back was, from injury. So we'll see. What, like eleven million? That was actually surprising. Like, yeah, I think with incentives, yeah, eleven million. Like, yeah, he actually got got pretty good money, and we didn't really get like a whole lot of reports out of his his workout. Like, it sounded like he was you know throwing ninety ninety one, 
you know, the stuff looked pretty good. And I guess it's fairly normal to not, you know, to not have full velocity, obviously, right yet. You're still building toward that in February um, and in, into March. So I guess that's that's normal. But yeah, I mean, considering the Yankees are, were all screaming about their luxury tax problems, you know, they went ahead and did that. And then they signed DJ LeMahieu to like a six-year, $90 million deal, which is weird for a player who's, I think, already 33 or 32 at least. So yeah, I don't know. It's been uh, it's been funky, and meanwhile, like all the the big tier guys are out there, and there's still you know kind of a ton of veteran, kind of pick your poison type pitchers who are all going to get one year, three, four, five, six million dollars or something like that. So there's going to be a lot of that that kind of filler um, move left around. But yeah, as we talked about with catcher too, like there's like there's like three you know halfway decent. Okay, this guy is you know your your backup catcher your backup veteran catcher for the year. And the Tigers need to get one of those guys. I, you know, I don't know if we have to, you know, write this article every single off season, but you know, at some point the Tigers have to address the goddamn catcher position. They do, And they do every year. This becomes a problem. And I think you and I have both extensively written about this over the last three years. And once again, I'm sure I'm, I know you're writing something about it, but like I'm going to write, the standard annual imploring speech to bring Alex Avila back because dude's still only like what 31 or 32 yep like he's not an everyday catcher but he's an absolute gem to have in your platoon and a great guy to have behind the plate when you've got your your Matt Mannings and your Casey Mises and your Tarek Scoobles out there yeah and that's our main concern you know um you know if you're going to bring up Jake Rogers, yeah, Jake Rogers is good defensively, but he still doesn't have that that experience and that sort of clout and know-how for um, for bringing up young pitch, run, young pitchers. And so, yeah, I mean, Alex Villa makes the perfect perfect sense. Alex Villa can play first base. We don't have a first baseman right now. Uh, maybe they'll circle back and and you know bring C.J. Crone back on a cheap deal if his knee is healthy and and try that. And I mean, the Tigers still seem to me. And I don't think I'm being optimistic here when I think the Tigers are probably still going to spend another 18 to $20 million. Like, I still think they're probably going to go and sign two or three more guys um, just to replace the money, you know, that that Jordan Zimmerman's contract coming off the books and Prince Fielder's money finally leaving. Like, they're, they're, I feel like they're going to spend that much. Um, but, again, that's, that's still going to be, like, you know, one or two mid-tier guys and maybe another pitcher. Um, but... I yeah. see them bringing C.J. Crone back. I think that would be an interesting move. Yeah, I mean, Jonathan Scope had a great year for us, too. I mean, I, I wouldn't mind doing that, assuming that they, they still want to play Willie Castro at shortstop, um, despite all evidence, you know, to the contrary, that he's ever going to be average or, or better there. But, um, yeah, I don't know. It still seems like those things are are at least possible. So we'll have to see. I really did like, you know, the, the Robbie Grossman signing. I wanted someone, you know, someone better. I wanted Michael Brantley. Um, to me, that would have been ideal, but I also know that Michael Brantley probably wants to go play for a real team and, uh, try to win himself a ring before he wraps things up. And Robbie Grossman is, is that type of low key signing that we would, you know, we would like to see like a guy whose metrics all turn in the right direction over the, over the course of the last year or two, who has like a swing change, that he made that kind of points to, a, you know, there being a reason for it rather than luck. Uh, his defense has gotten better. Um, he's still young enough, you know, t- to, you know, to be around a couple years and still be in his physical prime. And he's one of those guys who it feels like never broke out and then suddenly realized one day that like, okay, I'm 30 now and I've never had the big year that I thought I, I would have. 
and finally like maybe kicked it into you know overdrive and was much more willing to to experiment and try some different things in his swing and make some changes and it can be really hard to get guys to do that when they're successful um and sometimes it takes you know as we found with james mccann it takes getting cut and uh-huh. when you thought you were the man um in detroit and holy god that didn't work out well for us um uh-huh. You know, sometimes it, it sometimes it takes that, and we'd all wish that the you know the coaches and the managers could get that point through to them. Um, for whatever reason, Ron Gardenhire couldn't couldn't do that with James McCann, and um, you know to the Tigers' detriment, unfortunately, because I think most of us would have still liked him around as as the backup catcher. We just didn't want him catching <laughs> full time um, and costing the pitchers strikes. So. Yeah, that didn't work out too well for us, but um, James McCann is now a Met, and, you know, that's another team. You know, the Mets and the um, the Padres are building a new little power block between them in the National League that um, should be pretty interesting to see this year. Yeah, I think it's going to be, um, there's going to be some interesting National League baseball being played. Um, the White Sox, too, are going to be, I think, an intriguing team in the American League. They've made some good moves. Yep. And, uh, yeah, it's... Um, they continue to spend money and, and go all in. Um, they signed Ioannis' Cespedes' brother, his younger brother. Um, oh, God, I can't pronounce his first name without seeing it right now. But, um, but yeah, they picked him up, you know, in as an international free agent. They signed Liam Hendricks um, to be probably their, their closer. Uh, they still they had another good draft. They picked up Garrett Crochet with their first pick, who uh, turned out to be a left-hander throwing 100 miles an hour um, that they're going to use in relief now, um, looking like a bigger, nastier Josh Hader. So yeah, the uh, the White Sox are a big problem. They're they're going to be a big problem. And even though you know the Indians traded Francisco Lindor. That doesn't really help us that much. Um, it's it's still looking like the White Sox and the Twins, and then maybe the Royals and Indians, and then us. And so there we go. Sorry, I'm just looking at YouTube for Yolanda Cespedes' brother, and I can't tell. I want to say it's Euclid, but I can't it's, remember. Yeah, it looks like it's like Y O E L Q U I, but there's two guys listed, and I can't tell if it's just two spellings. Because there's Euclid and then there's Euclid. You will kiss. Yeah, I think I think they might both be Yuan and as brothers. I think he has two brothers. Half brother. Okay. Yeah. Says. Sorry, I'm just reading up on this. Oh no worries. But it looks like it's Euclid. Euc- oh my god, Euclid. <laughs> Euclid. Yulki. I gotta assume if it's Yoenis Yolki. Oh man, I feel like an asshole for not pronouncing that right, and I'm so sorry. That's all right. We're doing this in um, real. We're doing this in real time. <laughs> but um, yeah, so he does look like the one that the White Sox signed, but it's really interesting. Yep, and they keep doing that. You know, they've they've spent some money on some big international prospects. They were the ones who got Luis Robert, and um, they're going to be reaping the rewards of that for a while. So. Yeah, I mean, we have our work cut out for us, and um, the White Sox are the are the big dogs in the division now. Yeah, they're absolutely. I mean, the the Indians have done nothing to make themselves demonstrably any better, uh, and in fact, I think have made themselves significantly worse by yeah. moving, you know, Francisco Lindor, which is a foregone conclusion. We all saw that coming. Yeah, they still um, still have a good pitching staff, but moving uh, Carrasco was an interesting move. I didn't see that coming. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I thought that was a good move for the Mets too, because. Um, Carrasco, you know, has just has always been fairly good, and um, you know, has gone through 
leukemia and a bunch of injuries and um, has finally seemed to kind of emerge on the far side of it healthy. And even though he's in his 30s now, he's, he's still a pretty good pitcher. So, yeah, they're, um, they're stacking find, it up over there. What I find interesting about that move is that he had 5 and 10. Yeah. And so he chose to go. Yeah. <laughs> which yep. I always think is so interesting. Yeah, that's telling. <laughs> have the option, but you can tell... Um, Oh boy, um, not to interrupt, but there's some interesting uh, yikesy Nats news that just broke. Oh. Uh, apparently, their GM Jared Porter sent explicit photos, including naked pictures of his little friend, <laughs> to a foreign female reporter in 2016 after she ignored dozens of other messages from him for weeks. Oh no! Oh my uh, God! Mets, you were having such a good off season. Oh, oh everything was going so well. Ugh, that's gross. Don't do that. Uh, nobody, nobody wants your unsolicited dick pics. Yes. Anybody. Ben, let me let me give you just one bit of information. <laughs> Only sends them when they're solicited, my friends. <laughs> yeah, and even then, you should probably reconsider because everything that you put online. <laughs> yeah, you really want to know, like, do you want those out there? And I mean, consenting adults do your thing, but like. Yeah, but uh, yeah. but. Thinking. Consent is the biggest part of it. Don't don't send them unless anybody asks. Yeah, oh, and please and please also remember that the internet is forever. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh boy. Okay, and then yeah, like the last thing to kind of throw out in in Tigers news is the fact that the Tigers did have um, five players placed in the top thirty-one on Baseball America's top one hundred list. Um, that just came out the other day. Um, not a whole lot of like interesting notes about the players because, we, of course, we haven't really gotten to see a whole lot of them other than uh, Mize and Scooble. But it is it is notable just in the fact that it's just so rare to have five guys that high, usually because someone would have graduated. And um, Casey Mize and Tarek Scooble just came up just short of losing their, their prospect eligibility. And so it, this probably is the high watermark for the Tigers farm system um, for the foreseeable future because it's, there's a good chance that Manning debuts this year. Um, there's an outside chance Spencer Torkelson, who checked in at the number five overall prospect in baseball. The decent chance that he will debut this year. Um, it just depends on how things go for him. Um, they'll probably start him out in high A, which is now the West Michigan Whitecaps with the reorganization of the minor leagues. And so we'll, I would get over there and get your tickets to um, to see Spencer Torkelson pretty quickly there because odds are they're just going to keep moving him up to Erie and then um, to Toledo by year's end and, and just see if maybe he can get a look. Um, but um, I guess the, the thing about it is just that it kind of shows how top-heavy the Tiger system still is and how we need some more of the, uh, the, the younger guys and, and the ones who haven't broken through yet to, um, to fill in the gaps here. The Tigers are going to going to draft high again um, in 2020, and they're also going to have a second first-round pick in the, the competitive balance round. Um, so this is, you know, this is kind of the last, you know, big draft, assuming that they're not just going to keep tanking um, for the next couple of years. And so, yeah, it's going to be, it's just going to be such a big year for the whole organization as far as the rebuild goes, because, yeah, they've got to have, the, you know, the development system show some improvement and bring some of these guys along. They've got to have another big draft. Uh, we really like the 2020 draft, and there are some interesting prospects there that came up um, who it'll be fun to watch in the minor leagues this year. And, you know, it, this this has kind of gotten to the point where you can't just, you can't just like, tank and restock um, forever, and the Tigers have done about as much of that as you can. So um, it's, it's getting to be go time now, and uh, we'll be interested to see what, what impact all the new coaches and every, everybody has on 
the guys that we already have and the ones that we're familiar with, but especially with these young guys, um, have got to, um, to got to show some progress. So, you know, that, that's kind of going to be the, the story and probably the key overall narrative for the Tigers this season is how well Chris Fetter can help some of the pitchers and, you know, whether or not A.J. Hinch has an impact, whether or not Robbie Grossman kind of turns out to, to be the guy that he looked like um, for Oakland this year. And, you know, who's who ends up getting traded at the deadline um, other than Daniel Norris. So um, the Tigers' bullpen, I think, you know, we all saw that at least for like the first month of the season had a lot more potential in it than we'd seen in a long time. Greg Soto, Brian Garcia, Jose Cisnero, um, Joe Jimenez was just an afterthought and, and pitched badly. And they were still like a really effective unit um, for at least a while. Um, they were the kind of the thing that kept the Tigers in it. So... Hopefully the Tigers will have some trade chips coming out of that group because if you have a reliever who is good and you are not planning on winning in the next year, you probably should deal them. So, Yeah, it's going to be an interesting year. Yep, so we'll be looking for those guys. Um, and yeah, I don't know, I, I think that about wraps it up for this, for this episode as far as um, baseball goes. And I don't know, we get in a habit sometimes of like, you know, kind of like over promising on, on how many podcasts we're going to do. So I'm not going to do that, but we probably will be back within um, two weeks or so. And I'm going to try to have some other, um, some other guests on. Um, I wrote an article about seam shifted wake that probably a lot of you saw on the site. And I'd like to get someone else on to talk about that. Maybe one of the guys from pitchers list, um, or possibly if I can, if I can talk Dr. Smith, professor Barton Smith, or, um, Maybe even if I, if I could get Rob Friedman on here, that would be super fun to get the pitching ninja on. Um, it's a busy time of year, so you never know who you can get as far as guests go, but I will try to do something along those lines as well. So you can look forward to that. And, um, and I think at this point you can probably check out if, if you're here for baseball because for the most part we're going to talk about uh, Anya Taylor-Joy and the Queen's Gambit and uh, our, <laughs> our mutual obsession over, over said person. Um, from here to the rest out. So thanks for joining us. Um, if you want to stick around for the next half hour of us just absolutely simping over this girl, <laughs> feel free. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, Andy Taylor-Joy, I saw it in The Witch, like, four or five years ago. I, tw- 2015. Yeah, I, I only saw it for the first time this past Halloween. Um, I don't know what had taken me so long because I saw The Lighthouse, which is his other one. Yeah, and, director um, Robert Eggers, if, if people aren't familiar with The Lighthouse and The Witch. He's a little weirdo. I love his stuff. Like, it's so... It's it's not really horror, but yeah. it is. Yeah, it's like more Hitchcocky and like psychological suspense, but it's like, but, but gritty. He described them as like nightmares um, of, of people who've already died. You know, that was kind of how he described it, like, nightmares from the past. Um, and, and that kind of suits it. They have, like, this sort of, like, folk element to them, but they're so, like, visually realistic and, and, and gripping and, and gritty that when the, the supernatural elements and just the, the psychological tension between the characters starts to come up, it, it just seems to, like, I don't know, it just makes everything more vivid in relief. Um, I've really been a fan of his, his movies so far. It works so well in The Witch because you're straining to hear half of what's being said because the dad just, like, whisper mumbles all of his lines. Yeah, and it's like that sort of, like, Puritan English. It's very old-timey, and the music is, like, super tense but also, like, extraordinarily loud compared to the dialogue, so it's constantly throwing you off and, like, 
making you feel very uneasy. Yeah, and um, there's a lot of drone and like the, like these keening kind of insect sounds in the woods all around them and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the music does the heavy lifting of the horror in that movie. Um, but it's all just, it's it's a really interesting horror piece. Like, I find myself being drawn to horror movies like that, like that, like Midsummer. Yeah. Where it's not traditional horror, but it just kind of, like, gets under your skin and you just can't stop thinking about it after for a really long time. Yeah, yeah, it's much more, yeah, I mean, Hitchcocky, and, like, none of none of this is slashery, even even the little, you know, the, the gory parts that, that come up here or there, it's not the kind of movie that, you know, for people who are sensitive about that kind of stuff, or just, I mean, I'm not a big fan of, like, slasher movies at all, never really cared for much of that, um, other than, like, Nightmare on Elm Street when I was a kid, um, was, was, was into that, but... Um, yeah, it just, it's just the kind of thing that like worms into your brain and you keep thinking about and just, it just bothers you. <laughs> it gives you, uh, gives you bad dreams and yeah. It does. It just unsettles you. It, it's, Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Anyway, but it was absolutely, it wasn't her first role, I don't think, but it was absolutely her breakout role. It was, it was her first, it was her first movie. Was it really? Yeah. She'd never done anything else before. She'd, she'd been in like a kid's show, I think, and done some voice work. That was it. That's crazy. Yeah. And she just has to go through, like, like so many crazy emotions. Because if people haven't seen this movie, I mean, there it has, like, a little bit of, like, Salem witch trial-type action where the accusations start flying as all these horrible supernatural events start happening subtle, kind of subtly around, around the, the outskirts of this little community that they've built for themselves after leaving kind of the, you know, the, like, the Plymouth Colony... Um, they kind of go off on their own and uh, are living out, you know, way in the middle of like, you know, mid 1600s New England with nothing around on the brink of this gigantic, you know, ancient primordial forest. And um, yeah, darkness ensues. And yeah, she just gives like just like the most intense, amazing performance. And the final two scenes of that movie will just will just stick with you forever. Like you'll just oh, n- yeah. you'll never be able to get over it. I mean, I, I don't know how many people I've I've wanted to ask you know, the question to, you know. <laughs> would, would thou like to live deliciously? Yeah, wouldst thou like to would live deliciously? Like taste of butter? Yes, back then, oh. butter was the jam, apparently. So creepy. Mm-hmm. Black Philip the goat. But yeah, she's, uh, you know, she was great in that, and then I saw her in um, a movie called Thoroughbreds, which was is sort of like a dark, even like creepier, like rich girl version of Heather's. Oh, nice. I've heard really good things about it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's that's... her, and it's this other actress. That yeah, Olivia Clark. I quite liked in some... Or Olivia Clark. I saw Cl- her in, like, an absolutely terrible rom-com on Netflix, but she was really, like, really good. Yeah, she's really intense. Like, she's, she's she puts out a lot. You know, you, you definitely um, get, the, get the sense of intelligence and all this stuff boiling beneath the surface with her. And then, yeah, I think that was Anton Yelchin's um, final movie, like final appearance in a movie as well as sort of like the, the creepy drug dealer that these two kind of rich girls um, lure into their web uh, to do their bidding. And, and he's, he's great in that too, is sort of like, you know, trying to be the tough guy and, and basically just sort of like this hapless loser character. Um, so yeah, she's she's in that, and then yeah, it was Emma the Spring um, was the one where that kind of reminded me where I was just like, oh yeah, Annie Taylor Joy is super good. Like she just like I you wouldn't have, I after seeing everything else she'd been in, like you wouldn't have thought that she could do comedy and sort of like snark and like biting wit 
and all these all these sort of like fraught looks at with people and like she just she pulls off that physical comedy all through it so and well romance and yeah all of those aspects i've watched emma like at least twice since it came out and it was one of the few movies this this year that i was like yes i will pay twenty dollars to see this movie yeah um it's tremendous. Like everything about that movie is so, so good. The performances, the visual, like if you're a fan of any of Sofia Coppola's work, yeah, which is very like pastel and like, it's like eating soft cakes on a Sunday afternoon, the way she puts things into perspective. It's not a Sofia Coppola movie, but it's very similar vibe. Yeah, like, just a really, really strong visual style. And, and yeah, the director has been, like, um, Autumn DeWilde has been one of the best, most recognized, like, rock photographers for, you know, 30 years. Um, and going... the costumes are so tremendous. And, yeah. like, some of the most accurate to period that I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, I've watched YouTube videos talking about the accuracy of detail and everything that goes into the costumes. It's just amazing. Yep. And, um... And, you know, as someone who read Emma when I was probably, like, 11, when I was kind of going through the, like, okay, I'm going to read all the classics, like, I I don't remember the book perfectly well, but one thing I'd say is that, like, almost every Jane Austen adaptation I've ever seen in movies has sort of had that feel of, like, you're looking into the past and things are sort of muted and a little bit, like, sepia and the characters mm-hmm. don't seem particularly lively. Like, they, they, like they just, you know, they, they all seem like they're in a museum rather than that you've been taken to the time period and watching people, you know, in, you know, in bright color that they actually had at the time, like, be human, you know, within the, within the confines of, of, you know, the social structures and all the, all the manners and, yeah, the, the dress and everything like that. The 2005 Pride and Prejudice is very lively. Like, it feels very of its moment it's beautiful it's it's really really well done um is that the kira knightley one that's the kira knightley one that was fairly good yeah um who directed that joe joe wright directed that um and he's done like atonement in the darkest hour and the the hannah movie so he definitely has i think a a good sense of, of color and turning old style yeah things into new um i really liked that one but, um, but yeah, you know, there's just so much like wit and, and sort of like, you know, diva ish, you know, behavior in those books that might not come across as on the printed page and almost never seems to get translated, you know, in, into the movie versions. And, and that was what I thought they, they just accentuated that and, and heightened it just enough in, um, in, yeah, the 2020 version of Emma to like, to just really make the whole thing like vivid and pop. And it just has, um, it just has an amazing supporting cast as well, like Bill Nye is in that, um, Miranda Hart. Um, there's a, there's Bill a whole Nye bunch. Bill Nye is just tremendous. Like, yeah, just chewing up scenery in every single part of the movie he's in. Uh, he's just so good. Yeah, so fun to watch. Um, do, you know, do just about anything. And then the kind of the other revelation in that, because I I was already just like obsessed with Annie Taylor Joy, but uh, Johnny Flynn. Like, amazing, amazing Mr. Knightley in that movie. Have you ever watched, it was originally called Scrotal Recall, um, <laughs> but Netflix changed the title to Lovesick, um, which is less fun, because the entire con- construct of the show is that a guy finds out he, he has, like, a, a non-scary venereal disease and, like, has to call all of his last relationships oh, to like, wow. let them know. Oh, wow. And what a concept. 
it's so good though like it's it's very very British so it's like very funny and charming and the entire thing is how he's in love with his female best friend and she's clearly in love with him um and you're kind of just going through his past relationships high fidelity style but because of this this terrible thing <laughs> um I, I super recommend it if you can find it it's so good um but he was the lead in that and and so that's where I found him originally and I really liked him in that oh yeah I mean I'm just familiar with his with his music you know and not and not real well familiar with it um Johnny Flynn is kind of like a indie um I mean like an indie acoustic singer songwriter in England and you know kind of um with like a strong bent toward like folk folk music and folk songs you know in like the english tradition and kind of mixes that stuff into his music so i kind of was familiar with him from that but yeah i mean that was um emma was the first thing i'd i'd seen him in and yeah the way he and andy taylor joy kind of go at each other and um and kind of bring out the fact that he's they, they just brought it out m much more strongly that you you see that he's in love with her earlier than than you might would in anything else and you know and you can kind of see what a mess he is as well and that movie, the way they, they film that, there's just so, the layering is just so great because every time you go back and watch it, you start to see like, oh, that, yeah, okay, that person, if you didn't know, if you didn't know the story, like, oh, that, oh, okay, wait a minute, I see where Jane Fairfax is staring at Frank Churchill and they're looking at each other for just that brief moment. And, you know, they're just like the, um, the architecture of, of looks and, um, and gesture in that movie is just all so, you know, richly composed. It's, uh. It's really just a treat, um, and you know, and probably a lot of um, our baseball listeners aren't big Jane Austen fans. I, I hate to um, stereotype, but uh, but maybe you know, they should be, but maybe they should consider the satirists of society of her era. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I read her, and I think like even a lot of dudes that I grew up with who who read a lot of books and and were into literature, like there's still kind of this like idea that that Jane Austen is like chiclet, when in reality she's like the first great psychological novelist who like really explored like the concepts of, of people like sublimating their emotions, um, mm -hmm. you know, overcompensating, you know, for their feelings or, or muting their feelings because they're scared, you know, for them to be realized. And um, I mean, she's absolutely fantastic. And yeah, I just felt like this adaptation more than anything else, like let all that breathe um, really well, because when you look at that, that story in retrospect, you see that, for all Emma's meddling and, you know, and, you know, queen bee-ishness, he's exactly the same guy, but just in the guy sense. He's the one who's, like, getting the gossip everywhere and going and visiting everybody's houses at night and, you know, trying to work, you know, for his his boy, um, the farmer, to get Harriet Smith. And, you know, yes. yeah, I mean, he's he's working the same forces in the background and then and just giving her no end of shit for her meddling and stuff like that. And it's all just because he can't, uh, he can't just come out with it and... So delightful, and that I mean, we could talk about Emma forever. But I think the thing that most people um, saw her in, of course, this year. Um, yeah, this was, is why we decided to talk about her. <laughs> yeah. Queen's Gambit, um, which, like, when that hit Netflix, I'm like, excuse me, Anya Taylor Joy is in a TV show. Yeah, uh, I guess I'll try watching it about and chess. I, yeah, yeah, about chess. Okay, and I watched the entire thing over two days. Yeah, so the did entire I. Entire. I'm almost ready to rewatch it because I loved it that much. Um, but oh god, what it was funny because I watched that and I watched Cobra Kai for the first time <laughs> in the same weekend. Yeah. Um, over Halloween and oh, what a great weekend for TV. Oh, and notably, if we're talking about British comedy, I also watched the series called The Duchess. Oh yeah. Same weekend, which is very much 
in the flea bag vein of hard to like heroines. So if you don't like slightly cringy self comedy, um, avoid at all costs. But I loved it. Um, so that was a great weekend for tea. And and really, Emma kind of fits into that as well. Like, yeah, the the character who you know, and and that to to finish with Emma, the the great thing about that is that you know Gwyneth Paltrow is just sort of muted and it's and that just not that expressive or it's just hard to even imagine like Gwyneth Paltrow having like a, a sharp tongued, like super witty, like bitchy side. She's just sort of like, you know, kind of like lukewarm in, in all these ways. Whereas uh-huh. in Emma, like Anya Taylor-Joy plays her like kind of, you know, kind of a slightly, you know, well, not even slightly like a stuck up kind of snobby little rich girl who runs, runs her little social circle. And, uh, and then you get, and because you see her, in her unlikable self, it's just so much more satisfying when you see like the person change and come through all these realizations about, um, you know, about all the ways that they were, you know, foolish and, uh, and naive about, you know, about all their little plans and what they thought they could do and about their own emotions and how it was all just, you know, kind of to hide their own decisions that they didn't want to make. It's definitely worth noting that the best Emma adaptation before this was clueless. Yeah, yep. And they did reference that. I saw in one interview, like, they were talking about, yeah, they, they wanted it to be more, like, you know, to kind of have more of that clueless-type vibe to it. Yeah, because Amy Heckling's Clueless is is a such a good, such a good adaptation of Emma, and I don't think people realize that it is. Yeah. Um, but, like, 100% it's Emma, and if you've seen Emma and then watch Clueless, you get all of it, because it's all there. I mean, Elton, every part of it is absolutely flawlessly executed um, <laughs> so this i was excited to see one that was like closer to the book um but like truly awesome awesome both of them yep but yeah but then yeah the queen's gambit of course probably if if you're listening to this that might be the thing that you've seen Anya taylor joy in uh, because it just blew up and became like the biggest you know show on netflix maybe of all time at least as far as like a limited series goes and People are buying chess boards left and right and then chess clubs are going crazy and there's like, you know, just infinite YouTube videos of people talking about it and like playing out the chess games and all the, all the, you know, the chess glitterati are, are all buzzed and all that. But it just had, uh, it was just such, I mean, it was just such a flawlessly composed show. Like it just seemed to do everything well. Like, you know, the, the staging, the humor, there was, a, there was just so much humor that was not, like, forced in any way that kind of kept leavening the situation, even in the bleaker parts early on when it, you know, when they're in the orphanage and they've got the kids on drugs and they can't do anything. And, you know, Mr. Scheibel, the janitor, is actually, like, you know, p- pretty scary at first. Um, you know, there, there's kind of that, that darkness, but then they're, but they play with it. Like, the scene where she steals all the pills is, you know like horrifying but also kind of hilarious in its own way it's like a little caper of its own within uh within what's going on and so it just has it just has so many nice tones to it like that and the relationships that unfold you know you kind of are waiting for like things to be someone to be terrible to her or for something really bad to happen yeah and it's just like like real life stuff that plays out you know it's not like you know some soup one super dramatic moment it's just that you're, it's a biopic, really, and I, that's why I think so many people come away from that thinking it's a true story, uh, because it feels it, very real. Yeah, like it, it does feel like she was a real person, and I think that kind of it goes to the director and it goes to Anya's performance, and it's just like you feel that Beth has the complexity and the depth of a real person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, you know, she she has all these flaws, and 
and a lot of the things that that you like most about her, like the fact that she's sort of spiky and like right from the beginning when the, the girls at school are like, "Oh, your clothes suck and you're you're a weirdo," and she's immediately like, "Oh yeah, well fuck you, Margaret," you know, yeah, <laughs> and just kind of shocks them all. Like she has this sort of like tough exterior of a girl who grew up in an orphanage and also like a little bit like we we throw around like you know like autism like casually too often but she has a little bit of that where she can't read people she doesn't she thinks logically and she doesn't you know isn't following along with the emotions of the people around her um which often leads to like funny conflict as well very much the scenes where like she'll hook up with a guy and then just go back to reading her chess books and he's like uh like should we cuddle and she's just like i don't care do whatever you want yeah whatever you want (laughs) oh and the the scene yeah the scene where she like you know purposely goes with this college dude like i'm gonna lose my virginity tonight you know like all right this guy will have to do and then uh you know afterward when she's just like "Mm, yeah okay well that wasn't what i was hoping it was and she just like pats him on the shoulder yeah (laughs) like it's okay nice try oh my god that'll do yeah, yeah, uh, I I am sure you gave it your best shot, yeah. Yeah, she just, yeah. Uh, you know, there's, like, that commandingness to her. She never sort of devolves into, like, you know, the cliches that they would they would like to force on, on females in that kind of, in those kinds of situations, you know, like, you know, after-school movie type crap that, you know, they often feel obliged to put in there. Like, she's in charge of almost everything that happens to her, you know, and it's her own internal demons that are you know form all the conflict in the show other than like the you know the the couple ace chess players that she's got to take down along the way it's it's very interesting because like she's the kind of character i think that could be unlikable because she's kind of cold and aloof she's obviously struggling with like not only demons but like you know addiction yeah and she's never made to be less of the heroine yeah like in spite of her flaws or even because of them, she still is somebody that you like root for, um, which I think is, is something you rarely get to see in like a female driven movie like that, where like she's never made the villain of her own story. Yep. Or, Um, and she doesn't really need to be rescued either, you know? Exactly. Like she doesn't need a man to sweep in and save her at the end. It's, it's not a man at all who comes to like pick her back up. It's, it's a friend and it's a woman and I think that, like, that final act of that show is just sensational. Yeah, where um, she kind of finally really under, good. yeah, comes to understand that she does have, you know, all these people around her and that it's her that's kind of built all the walls and not, not just the, circum- the tough circumstances that she's been through with her mother dying, you know, and yeah, and then being in the orphanage and then being, you know, adopted by this really weird couple, but you know, luck of luck, it turns out okay because the dad just leaves and she and, you know, her, her new momish mom, you know, have like this, this really sweet, you know, fairly deep and, and sophisticated relationship that forms, you know, really quickly where they, you know, they sort of support each other and, you know, like help each other each sort of have part of their, their dream, you know, and her mom before, you know, the end of her life kind of gets to have like this fun and this adventure before, you know, before her drinking and, kind of, you know, depression over the, the stiltification of the, um, the you know, mid-50s, 60s housewife lifestyle um, finally kind of does her in. But, um, but yeah, that relationship was great. All the relationships were, 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 were just so good. And, yeah, I mean, as an actress, she's, I mean, she just has, like, these weapons because she has, like, these, you know, I, I've seen, I, somebody described her as, like, some kind of, like, you know, alien elf from the future. Like, her face doesn't look like, 
She's mm-hmm. incredibly beautiful, but you've just sort of never seen anyone who quite looks like that. Like she's, yeah, she she looks like she was born to play, you know, Galadriel's daughter in, yeah, as uh, Stephen Colbert was, was freaking out about in an interview I saw with her. Because I am obsessed <laughs> and have seen every interview with this person and need need to sort of... Need to sort of step back, but I mean, yeah. Once in a while, I I do just get they absolutely know, obsessed my... with an actor or an actress, and I have to to know everything about them. And I'm I am definitely there with her. Well, you know, my favorite story then, my favorite story of the filming of Queen's Gambit is that scene with her playing with the young child, um, the Russian prodigy. Yeah. And in that scene where she keeps wandering around and going going to the other side of the room and like stalking around and watching him all of that was improvised yeah she just did all that she she told the director she's like what if i just like pace and he's like yeah go to town and they they just didn't tell the kid yeah so she would just get up from the table and like walk across the lobby and then come back and play her move and walk away and i thought it was really neat to watch how it unsettled him yeah really cool yeah she just kind of yeah didn't she say like can i just can i just intimidate this kid you know the way beth would and yeah and just like Going and sitting down and then just like tapping her tapping her foot while just staring at him with these giant eyeballs and freaking him out. Yeah, so good. Yeah, one of the things that I, I thought has been the coolest about her career is that she just has picked so many good parts. Like I've, you know, she was in um, she was in Split. You know, a lot of people didn't recognize her at first because she had dark hair in that movie. Um, but but she held her own against James McAvoy in like in an absolute kind of batshit psychological thriller in in that movie James too. <laughs> yeah, nineteen different James McAvoy's, and I it just seems like and it just seems like she's found like people who who really let her just collaborate with them. You know, like she's she's picked good scripts and worked with good people, and it's been interesting to hear her talk about um, you know like the the, the points where she was able to just be like, no, we're doing it this way, you know, and, and where the directors have, have really kind of asked her input and sort of let her into it. Um, she just seems to have a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of good, like good taste, but also like really good sense for like picking who to work with. Um, and so like the point of all this is that even before Queen's Gambit, I've just been like, this girl's going to be a huge star. Um, this, you know, at what point is everyone going to wake up and then go back and watch all of these other good movies that she made before everybody kind of knew who she was. Yeah. And then all of a sudden the Queen's Gambit came out and it was like, Oh, holy cow, here we go. All right. So yeah. Good luck out there, Andy Taylor joy. Um, and be ready because yeah, you're going to be, you're going to be recognized now. (laughs) Like now you got to deal with it. To take the Charlize Theron role in the prequel for Furiosa. Yep. Um, the Mad Max Fury Road prequel, which I mean, I'm hesitant to be excited about because Mad Max Fury Road is absolutely my favorite movie of all time. You know, I just uh, watched that. As a result of her getting that role, I finally was like, you know, you never did go see Mad Max Fury you Road. You never saw it before? No, I never did, and it was awesome. I mean, it was that, awesome, for sure. That movie is the closest I've come to thinking, am I having a heart attack? In a movie <laughs> yeah, well, Tom Hardy. Adrenaline. Yeah. Oh, my God, that movie is so good. Another, another person who... And and I don't know, maybe like some young people are listening to this. Like and, and if you don't know this already, like a great way to go about like finding new movies, new music is to like look for like who produced this music or who directed this movie or you know, if if this person keeps showing up in good projects, you know, go look up their IMDB page and go watch everything else that they did. I mean, there there are there are chains like the people who are the best in their fields like seem to find each other and, and create these chains. And like Tom Hardy, obviously 
Um, I, I've never seen Tom Hardy be anything less than absolutely fucking brilliant in anything. Um, phenomenal. He's un, un, he's a powerhouse. And I honestly don't think that Tom Hardy gets the respect he deserves as an actor just because he happens to be, like, buff and pretty. Yeah. Like, but he's also, he's, but he's, but he's, like, you know, and he has that, but he's also, like, sort of ugly. Like, he's not, like, pretty, he's, okay. pretty. He's so, not pretty. He's, like, your type of pretty because he looks like he could have, he could have, he could have been a catcher. He fits the niche of... <laughs> Ashley's type of attractive man, um, which is entirely, does he look like he killed somebody once? <laughs> um, there's two. There's two. One is, does he look like he's a big fan of Chicago sports teams? <laughs> um, which I feel like every woman who lives in Illinois understands exactly what I'm talking about. And the other... <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, guys out there will also know what I mean. Well, and girls will also know what I mean about Chicago girls as well. But, we'll, okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> And then the other, well, I mean, like, just picture Jason Kipnis if you're not sure what, I talk about, what I'm talking about when I say dudes who look like they like Chicago sports. Because he's from Illinois, and he's exactly what I mean. Um, but then, yeah, there's guys that just look like they've been beat up a couple times, and they might have been, like, a semi-pro boxer when they were younger. That is... Oh. Yeah. Uh, and Tom Hardy absolutely fits into that. Yeah. Um, but did you see the movie he did where it was just him in his car? No. Nope. Oh, God, what was that called? Hold on, I'm going to look it up, because it's sensational. I, I've missed him in, in a few things in the past, too. Like, I, it, at first, somehow, I didn't realize he was the foil in The Revenant until, like, the end. And that, oh, it, yeah. And Walk I, is the name of the, the car movie. The entire thing, and, like, Olivia Coleman is in it, but has just her voice. Ah, interesting. Um, and he's, he's just driving, and it's him kind of with his whole world unraveling as he has conversations with his wife and with a woman he cheated on his wife with who's now pregnant, and, like, this entire, like, sticky mess he gets himself into. Ah. But the whole movie is just him and a cell phone in a car. Oh, interesting. Like, talk about carrying the entire thing by yourself. It's unbelievably good. What's that um, movie about the dude who's in the... Uh, well, I shouldn't even get into this one, but there's a movie... I want to say it's, like, Jake Gyllenhaal or something, where he's in a, um, a phone booth, and a sniper targets him, and the entire movie is him being being trapped in this phone booth, unable to call for help. And like phone booth, yeah. Uh, Colin Farrell. Oh, Colin Farrell, that's who it is. Yeah, okay. It was fairly forgettable, but yeah. Yeah, it's him and Kiefer Sutherland is the guy that's. The yes. Yeah. There you go. Yep. Yeah. I remember that movie. But yeah, I mean Tom Tom Hardy, awesome. And then to to okay so. Annie Taylor Joy led me. Her getting the the Furiosa role led me to see that, and then Johnny Flynn led me to go watch Beast um, about two weeks ago. And Beast is as a hell of a movie from about two years ago. Um, it's him and Jesse Buckley. Um, and Jesse Buckley, I don't know if, if you if you know who she is. She's in the new um, Charlie Kaufman movie. Um, I'm thinking about ending things. Um, which I also now need to see because she is fucking incredible in this movie. But basically, she's like the outcast of of her sort of rich upper class family. And Johnny Flynn, and this is on the Isle of Jersey, off off of England. And Johnny Flynn is sort of like this poacher, handyman, like mysterious character who she meets, and he sort of takes her away from this rich, stilted life. But 
there are murders taking place all over the island, and it keeps oh, going. This is a real story. The Beast of Jersey is a yeah. real story. Well, yeah, it's 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 only loosely based on it though. But um, but yeah, he plays the character that you know you're not sure who it is until they actually find the murderer, and it and it just goes in back and forth. But but Jesse Buckley in particular in that movie is just bananas good because she's kind of having a breakdown and and trying to like you know she's falling in love with this guy, but she's also terrified of him. And like everybody she knows is telling telling her that they think it's you know he's the killer, and um, there's just, there's just so many great scenes. I mean, it's it's just a, another like super intense, um, you know, slightly skin crawling at, at you know at at points just because of what the emotional like and psychological damage that is going on um, in that movie were, is is really intense. But that that oh, movie that was good. Yeah. Um. Be, by the way, um, if you're true crimey like I am, um. Google Beast of Jersey with extreme caution. Yeah, yeah. Um, that guy wore the scariest fucking mask I think I've ever seen. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. That is that is a a particularly terrifying one. I would agree. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I regoogled that. That's gonna that's gonna take me to bed tonight. Oof. And then finally, and I want people to know real quickly. Like I do watch popular movies. I do read popular books. Um, but we don't talk about that because people, you know, by and large, will find that stuff by themselves. So the fun is like the the slightly indie stuff that maybe maybe all didn't hear about. So I also have to hit on Black Bear because I am an Aubrey Plaza fanatic as well. Um, I'm absolutely obsessed with Aubrey Plaza. I love that woman. She's hilarious. Um, she's she's just great in everything she does and and just is so willing to like commit to something and just take it to absurdity. Like you just see the the improv training in her even in like all the interviews and there are huge compilations of her talk show interviews because she's a psycho in those and in the best possible way and. Um, <laughs> But she, but she gives like one of the another one of just like amazing performance in Black Bear, and it's sort of this meta movie where she's a director and she is going, she tries to go on this ret- retreat to this cabin um, in upstate New York because she just can't write and she's feeling blocked and all that. And this couple who used, you know, one of them's a musician, the husband and the wife is a dancer, and she's pregnant and they're, you know, they didn't really have that much success with their art. And so they moved out to this place and bought it and they're going to turn it into an, a retreat, you know, and that's kind of how they're going to going to make their living. But but she has like just a knack for button pushing um, from the beginning with them. And it sort of plays off of like Aubrey Plaza's like actual like persona, at least like a little bit of like the April Ludgate and um, uh-huh. and, you know, and, and the interview persona with her. And the way, like, the three of them, like, the, the toxicity of the relationship that, that, that comes between the, those three characters all in the course of one night is super intense and, and just leads to this, like, absolutely, like, shattering scene. And then the movie completely switches. And now they're actually making the movie, but they're all in different roles now. And um and so you watch the whole thing unfold like from a completely different perspective as a mo- as the movie being made of that that first part, and 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 in the second part, Aubrey Plaza gives an even crazier like more intense like like the most intense like you know your your palms are clammy like you're watching Free Solo um you know and just freaking out like I had to like keep turning it off and walking away and you couldn't look away. <laughs> But you couldn't, you know, you couldn't give up on it either because it was just so goddamn intense. Like she has the most intense, like twenty-minute, like breakdown um, in a, in a movie I think I've ever seen. Uh, and just like confirm for me what I always knew, which is that 
she just has more balls than anybody, will push things like so far, has so much guts. And I wish people would get over the April Ludgate like slacker stuff because I, I do think she's one of the best actresses out there and I wish she was getting like the big time roles. And so hopefully that will that will finally start happening for her. Um, I know the movie kind of got swamped by, you know, COVID and the fact that it's a weird art movie in its way. But holy shit, was she great in that. So, like, two things about that. Um, the guy that plays the husband in that movie, because I haven't seen Christopher Abbott. IMDb. Yeah, Christopher Abbott. Yeah. That guy's poised. Like, he's going to be something. Yep. Um, he's going to be the next takeoff from the girl's legacy. Like, Adam Driver is the guy right now. But, like, Christopher Abbott's, like, really quietly very good. Yeah. Um, he is great in that. Um, and he's been in such interesting roles. Um, and I think that he's really going to have a breakout at some point soon. Um, he's getting there, and I, I think he's just really talented. Um, and speaking of Aubrey Plaza, um, she... Happiest is, season. Happiest season was amazing, by the way, and that movie ended the wrong way. Yeah, everybody believes like, it, yeah. <laughs> she absolutely, it should have been Kristen Stewart and... Aubrey Plaza at the end. That's the only thing that makes any sense. I would love to see but, Kristen Stewart and Aubrey Plaza together. That sounds great. Uh, I didn't. I didn't see that movie, but I couldn't help avoid the the litany of of rage about the fact that yeah, they didn't end up together in that movie. It was the wrong movie, but <laughs> in, anyway, it's a good movie and it's 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 fun though. It's it would be nice to see like a lesbian Christmas movie that isn't so wrought with with personal dramas. <laughs> uh, but she was in Aubrey Plaza was in this really funny sex comedy called the. The to-do list. Oh, yeah. Which is which is from 2013, and it's very much like high school senior realizes she's done absolutely nothing except it's very much like book smart, right? Where, like, yeah. she realizes she hasn't done anything or had any fun or had any personal experiences. So she's, like, checking things off of a sexual to-do list over the course of a summer. Yeah, before she goes um, to college. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, like, got this incredible cast with Bill Hader um, and a bunch of other people. Well, let me... Oh, the girl from... Um... Oh no! It's a great list. Like it's the her. girl from Broad Street. What's her name? Alia Shawcat. Yeah. is in it. Um, Rachel Bilson is in it. Christopher Mintz-Plass, Andy Samberg, Donald Glover, Adam Paley. Yeah, Donald Glover. Uh, that's right. Connie Britton's her mom. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's really good and really cute and funny and kind of charming. Yep, and kind um, of a, and kind of a turnaround. Such a turnaround on the like, you know, the boy virgin has to get laid, you know, in his last year of high school type type movie, like completely subverts the, the entire thing. And uh, yeah, we do like a, That's good. a double feature one night of the to do list and book smart, which are two of the like funniest, most charming, like girl wants to lose her virginity before college type tropes. Um, yeah, I think it's it'll be good. Yeah. 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 And, uh, you know. She's she's been good in pretty much everything. Ingrid Goes West was was weird and good. Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates was kind of just stupid, but it, it had its moments. Um, but yeah, and then Legion. Like, I don't know who else. So weird. I don't know who else could play that character, um, the demon in 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 Legion, because what's required of it is just so absolutely batshit crazy, and it just changes like seductress and like maniac, and then like sweet innocent, and like just. Like every every gamut of emotion and and you know character and stuff throughout that thing and yeah I mean she she can just do it all I mean the woman is uh the woman is super talented and you know the thing about the to do list is I I get the feeling that Aubrey Plaza was that girl because whenever you you know you listen to her talk about like her childhood she was 
like president of all the clubs and you know uh-huh. it was like really popular and like a you know a really good student but also just a complete kind of weirdo under the surface and at some point the weirdo you know really came out and that's what everyone latched onto but she's she's a she's a really smart uh overachiever type type person underneath the yeah whatever slacker vibe there's there still is there yeah and i know people wanted to play daria but I, I personally i think she's way past that and it would only kind of lock her into that crap again yeah another fun one if you haven't seen it is um safety not guaranteed which is like the weird time travel one with her yep. and jake johnson who's like nick miller from, that's such um, a cool little movie yeah yeah and it's got mark duplis who i love um it's got Colin Trevorrow directed that. Yeah, the guy who went on to do uh, the the latest Jurassic Park, Jurassic right? World. Yeah, Jurassic World. Yeah, yeah. I think that was the movie that that got Steven Spielberg to to pick him. Yeah, Safety Not Guaranteed. Another really like cool cool little indie movie. Yeah. I don't weird that the, the next thing he did after Safety Not Guaranteed was Jurassic World. Wow. Yeah, you think about the the difference in budget. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, Safety Not Guaranteed looks like, you know, almost like a very well-made student film. and oh, then uh, Deeply indie. Yep. And then all the like, way to, to Jurassic uh, World. All right. And, all right. And then to, to jump off from this, this Anya Taylor-Joy into all these other topics, things. I, one more is that um, Tom Hardy in Peaky Blinders. Amazing. Elfie Solomons. Um, I don't know if you if you've watched Peaky Blinders. Aren't you? Don't you like Killian Murphy? You probably do. I do. I liked him a lot um, earlier in his career, like stuff like Twenty Eight Days Later. Okay. Um, and, and like up to probably like Batman. Um, those ones were more my Killian phase. Okay. I found the character in Peaky Blinders that he plays to just be so cold. Yeah. That it's really hard to like feel attached to him. Yeah. And it and it doesn't loosen up that much like in seasons like three, four, and five. It starts to, but um, and you see a lot more of him and like more of like what he was like before the war and before you know all that trauma and stuff like that. But that's just such a amazing conception of a show. That's just such a a, a historical timepiece that you that you wouldn't really think about as the all the dudes who fought in the trenches coming home. And obviously like that would include like J.R.R. Tolkien who who turned his experiences you know into a whole you know different you know, realm, like went to the fantastic and the mythic rather than the, the gritty, you know, street violence of, uh, of Manchester. But man, I love me some Peaky Blinders. There's a lot of Nick Cave music. There's a lot of uh, PJ Harvey music. Um, the whole thing just feels like it was, it was made for me in the late nineties. <laughs> like I am ready to dye my hair black again. <laughs> watching that, watching that show, but Tom Hardy's in that and he plays an amazing character in that. And then who shows up in season five, but Miss Taylor Joy again. Well, what I noticed is that the second Queen's Gambit started being popular, they changed the header image for Peaky Blinders yeah. to a picture of her. Yep. So that people would be like, did you know? Well, wait like, a minute. I did not, but I stopped watching that show after season two. So. Yep. But the whole thing is just so interesting to watch happen to an, an actress because I've seen it happen so many times with bands because, you know, I, you know, there's just been so many bands that I was into and loved their first couple albums. And then they finally have this hit. And then you see everybody like you know, turn around and go backwards throughout their whole career. And yeah, it kind of feels like, like that's going to happen with uh, Andy Taylor joy as far, as far as movies go and, um, and TV. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch, watch that happen and see, see what else comes from it. She just got done filming the, the Norseman, which is Robert Eggers third movie. 
um, which is probably going to come out late next year. And I think that's got like Ethan Hawke and um, Alexander Skarsgård and Nicole Kidman. But it's some kind of like Icelandic Viking, you know, murder mystery thriller. Um, and to to think about the dude who did The Witch in The Lighthouse doing a movie like that just sounds like fucking awesome. Like I can't I can't wait for that. So I'm st- uh, I'm stoked for that one as well. The Northman is that the one? Yeah. Now I'm looking at this. Ooh. The I think the Norse Norse. I've never men? heard of this. It's called the Northman. Oh, is it Northman? According to IMDb, yeah. Oh, okay. Northman. All right. Ethan Hawke, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, yeah again, yeah. I mean, if you've seen The Lighthouse, well. Yeah. Oh, Willem Dafoe. So nice to see him getting all these props late in his in his career. He's done so many great things. I thought you liked my lobster. <laughs> oh my god, that's some of the speeches. Oh my god, the speeches he gives in that. that... The two mono- the two major monologues yeah. in that movie are the ones where he yells about making dinner, and the one where Robert Pattinson is just outraged about how bad Willem Dafoe smells. Yep, yep. The farts. Oh, God. If you haven't seen The Lighthouse, I, I don't know if I want to say watch it, because it's very much for a very specific audience. Yeah, you have to be able to handle like being very unnerved and uncomfortable. And actually, just about every movie that we've mentioned um, here are have some, some elements of that in play where I'm like naturally yeah. like wincing and want to stop, but I'm like super compelled as well. And that's kind of my favorite... <laughs> tension to be in in a movie you've never wondered like hmm, i wonder what a mermaid vagina looks like um <laughs> or, or like what would happen if robert pattinson and willem dafoe were stuck on an island in black and white yeah um, in nova scotia it, in the late 1800s yeah it may not be the movie for you <laughs> um but that said it's very unnerving and weird and you have very strong feelings about a seagull and yeah um, I saw it in theaters. And don't, just don't, wacky. don't look into the light. Yeah. Yeah. Don't look into the light. It belongs to him. It belongs anyway. to him. Yeah. <laughs> I am the keeper of the light. Anyway, sorry. Uh, the lighthouse is bonkers. Yeah, um, absolutely. Watching. If you don't mind feeling a little bit uneasy. Yeah. So, you know, um, uncle Brandon and Aunt Ashley have, have recommended all these movies for you guys now to go be super creeped out by. And, you know, you can compliment us and thank us profusely or yell at us for giving you bad nightmares, um, on Twitter as usual. But, um, I think we'll wrap it up now. <laughs> I, I think I laughed at you for the idea of us talking about Anya Taylor joy for 30 minutes and we sure did just go for it. Yeah. At least we, we splintered off into everything else rather than me, like detailing every obsession with her facial features that, that I might have. So, <laughs> Because uh, she is amazing looking. Yeah, there's just she a... very unique looking. Absolutely. She's... And then you get the British accent, the Spanish, you know, the Argentine, the Spanish mixed accent. in. Yeah, and it shifts. Like, whatever she's talking about or how excited she is, it gets more American. And when she's calmer, it's more she English. She born in America and grew up part of her life in Argentina and then grew up the rest of her life in Britain. So it's a very, like interesting mix yeah yeah absolutely and she's a smart gal you can tell she's a big reader so oh my god bjork is in this movie yeah oh that's right bjork is in the northman too yes yes and i'm going and damn it i'm going to iceland we were supposed to go to iceland in october and obviously covid blew that all out of the water we are going to go next october so i expect to go to iceland and have a crazy adventure for you know 10 days driving around in a camper van exploring the whole island by ourselves and then come back and then hopefully the northman will hit right then (laughs) that would be ideal yeah all right 
we'll uh, we'll let it go from there. Next time we'll do books maybe and and go through like everything that we read in quarantine, which could be a whole giant episode as well. So I don't know, maybe we'll throw some of these extras in there where you know we're both big readers. We watch a lot of movies and consume a lot of art and music and stuff. And so what the hell, we'll talk about that when we get chances as well. <laughs> yes, uh, a little bit over over a long period. We've got lots to keep you busy. Yeah, yeah, it's still a long winter to go. So. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, Hope you're all staying safe out there. Ashley, have a good evening, and we'll talk to you all later on. Bye, guys. Bye.